everybody and welcome to another episode of Hands Off the Merchandise. My guest this week is author, podcaster, all-round wonderful person. I have with me Ross Williams. Hello. Hello. That's a very nice introduction. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I always say that I start with a good introduction and then we can go downhill from there, you know. Excellent. Uh, and I was looking around for the other guest that you were about to introduce. <laughs> with shoddy journalism. Well, you've, <laughs> uh, you know, you've um, written books with Hornswoggle, Bob Holly, Al Snow and many other subjects you have written about as well. Not just I've rest- written a few things in my time, yeah. So um, it's been an interesting, varied career. You wouldn't really think that writing about wrestlers on the one hand and about recruitment and the sales industry and business in general would go together, but somehow I seem to make it work. It's kind of a weird thing because I'm, I'm going to get all the cliched sort of questions out of the way first, you know, and then we'll start talking. Shall I about answer the... them like one word answers? Then we can get on with the really interesting <laughs> stuff later. Oh, well, if, if I... I'll do question... Dean Ambrose and just say, nope. Well, if I, if I word the questions correctly, that's the thing. You know, after four years of doing a podcast, I, I should be a better interviewer by now because sometimes I'll like, <laughs> I'll ask a question that is an open end, or I won't ask it as a question. I'll just say it as a statement and then expect the guest to sort of reply as yeah. a conversation. And then when they don't, I'm like, okay, dead it. Let's, you know, let's continue. Hey, you're talking to a person <laughs> with 21 years in recruitment. So I'm all about open questions. So I, if, I'll guide you if we have a problem. Don't worry, it'll be all right. That's good. You'll see me through. That's good. Um, <laughs> it's teamwork now, pal. Teamwork. This good. Well, the thing is, you are like a co-author of wrestling biographies, and you're not American. How's that? No. How's that happen? Like, uh, it, well, <laughs> it, it was a surprise to me as well. Um, it, it happened when I was training to be a wrestler back in two two thousand nine, and. I got um, I got training with Bob because the chap who trained me, a guy called Tom Jones, wrestles as a UK kid, and he trained at Shawn Michaels' Texas Wrestling Academy. Then Tom would bring over some guys from the States to train, and a few people that I had a chance to train with included Bob and um, Billy Gunn and the Road Dog. So a lot of tag team champions in there, and... Bob was the guy who kept coming back time after time, did a lot of shows with the promotion, which was VPW. And it so happened that along the way, Bob and I struck up a rapport. Uh, it, it went from being that Bob thought I wasn't particularly athletically competent, which he was absolutely correct on, to seeing how hard I was working over the course of a few training sessions. And when it came to a show where we had a no-show, then Bob went to Tom and said, put Ross in because he he can do something, give him a microphone, he'll talk for five minutes and then do a two-minute match and it'll be fine. And so Bob went to back for me and we did that and it worked fine. And then I ended up in a match with Bob uh, a few months later when somebody on the show's got injured and that went very well as well. And that's that became the, the preface to the book that I wrote with Bob. And it just happened that a few months after we had that match, Bob got in touch with me and said, hey, listen, um, I know that you're pretty good with words. Then any thoughts about the idea of doing a book? And I said, absolutely, I'll be up for that. So we talked to the publisher and he saw that I had had years of writing business documentation and I'd written uh, a lot of uh, stuff for companies as a ghostwriter. So I was able to produce some examples and they said, okay, well, yeah, absolutely. We can go with this. You're a good writer and you know wrestling. So what could go wrong? And it turned out uh, plenty, but that's what editors are for. So Bob didn't know that you had written beforehand. No, Bob wasn't particularly. He knew that I could put a few words together because of the promos that I would cut when we would do them in practice and when we do them at shows. So he knew that I was decent with words but I think 
it came from a few emails that we'd had back and forth that he started to understand that I was okay on paper. And it really was, he was saying, look, do you know anybody who could do this? And I thought, well, uh, I know a person and, and it's me. So let's talk. And it's one of those beautiful moments where things led to other things. And it is the old adage of it's a contact sport and it's who you know in terms of your contacts. Absolutely. So with Bob, you know, the, the wide, widely sort of known perception of Bob based on the Tough Enough series when he yeah. beat the crap out of Matt Capitelli. Um, did that worry you? Was no. Did he come in with an aura? Is he completely... I've met Bob. We did an even, uh, afternoon with in front of an audience with Bob and couldn't have been nicer. Um, so a very misunderstood person, I guess. Very much. Bob is an absolute sweetheart. He'll kill me for saying that. But, uh, <laughs> he is a, a right softy. He's, he's, uh, he's stayed at my house. He's met my children. Um, he is... He is a, a good man through and through. And uh I'll tell you a great story about Bob is when I was driving him back to the airport. Oh, no. Was it back to the airport? I was driving him to pass him over to somebody else who was taking him on the next stage of his tour. And on the way there, we had gone somewhere with my fiance. And he had noticed that we just all got in the car separately. And he took me aside later and he said, listen, you need to open the door for your fiance. That's good. That's being gentlemanly. That's doing it right. Okay, you've got to treat her right. And he, it wasn't cutting a promo. It was just kind of giving me some good man advice. And I thought, you know what, that is good, old school, decent man behavior. So I thought brilliant that he put that to me in such a way that was supportive. Uh, uh, an elder gentleman, he's, you know, he's 15 years older than me, giving me a piece of advice, which I've taken to heart. So that's the kind of thing that I associate Bob with now. And I think a lot of people do go back. And that Matt Capitelli thing has kind of been the blight of his career. Um, and at the same time, it was almost the making of, of his character at a certain level, especially when he played the tougher guy as it went on. But I think a lot of that was perception of the character before that, the no-nonsense, I'm going to kick your butt kind of guy. And it all became a perfect storm. And I go into that in the book, or Bob and I go into it in his book, in that at that time what the viewer didn't know is that bob had a broken neck at that point bob wasn't even meant to be there that day bob was meant to be having surgery but wwe had begged him to be involved in that so they brought him down he was in an incredible amount of pain and what they again didn't show you is that off camera the kids were acting as if this was all a big joke and naturally that is going to wind a guy like Bob up who has dedicated his life to it to the point where he's got a broken neck. Yeah. And so I mean, no point... wonder he was a bit a bit antsy that day. And having been in the ring with him myself, I tell you this, he worked snug, but he didn't do anything whereby he compromised my well being. He didn't do anything where I couldn't go to work the next day. Um I felt that I'd been in the ring with him, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. If you look back at the footage the reason why Matt got a bit bloodied up is because Matt was in the corner and he was wriggling around like a fish out of water. So yeah. having been in the ring myself, I know this, that you go where you're put and you let the other person do what they're going to do and you sell it when they're done doing it. If you wriggle around while they're doing it, they cannot miss you. <laughs> I think as well, I mean, he was, you know, besides Smoky Mountain and WCW and where else he wrestled before WWF, he was with WWF for 14 years during all the transitional period and everything else. So I don't think anyone, 
could question his uh, professionalism or, you know, you've never heard anyone say that he injured them on purpose. Okay, he was snug or whatever, but you called Hardcore Holly. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. if you don't <laughs> do that, then... <laughs> You know, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, and softcore Holly wouldn't have worked. <laughs> That's a different gimmick all that together. Is yeah. Absolutely different. Yeah, <laughs> Bob would have nothing to do with that one. Um, so this was what two thousand and nine. So it was right after Holly had been, not long after Holly had been let go. Yeah, it was pretty WWE. quickly after Bob had moved on because he did the Cody Rhodes deal in two thousand eight, I believe, and that was his, that was his swan song from WWE. Really, that deal with. Cody and Ted DiBiase Jr. And it's, so it wasn't it long after at all. It seems insane to me that that's a ready-made angle when Cody turned yeah. on Bob. So, you know, for listeners who don't know, um, and, and we're not just going to focus on Bob throughout the entire interview, but did Bob know that he was leaving at that point? Or no. did so he thought that there was going to be a ready-made feud? Because it was, no, a, great, I, no, it was a great little angle that happened. It was, and, it was. You know. But Bob, by that point had become realistic about it in the same way that I think everybody who gets to the end of their WWE run, and I've had the same thing from Al and the same thing from Dylan on this one, and I no doubt we'll hear the same from many other people in time, is that the more you work there, the more you learn to not believe it till you see it, and the more you get used to feeling a little bit let down. And there were a number of occasions where Bob had been told this might happen or this could happen, and... The key point being when he was, um, it was heavily hinted to him he would be in a major match at WrestleMania 23 and he was going to be Vince's guy against Lashley because that was the way the booking was leading. And I could see that they might have hinted to Bob, but when you look at the booking, it was quite clear that it was always going to be Umaga and that they would be not telling Bob that because then they get the best performances out of him. And they only let him in on it when, of course, they do the cage match with Bob and Lashley and Bob gets squashed. And then Umaga comes out and Bob thinks, well, that's me out of the main event then. And But coming to the Cody thing, yeah, they didn't even tell him what was going on next. They just knew that Bob was going to be away for a little while. And so Bob went off and he got something fixed. And he came back to them and he proposed some ideas. And one of them was ready-made and absolutely ideal in that he had been teaming with Billy Gunn on the house shows and on TV. And so Billy was still affiliated with the company at that point. So why not get Billy and why not get Bob? Because they're good friends. They work really well together. Get those two and have Bob bring back Billy, the tag team specialist, to teach the two young upstarts a lesson. It writes itself there. Mm. And when he pitched that and the writer said, yeah, you know, we'll get back to you. Then that was when Bob realised, you know what, they've got no plans for me. I think maybe it's time for me to get my release. It During that time as well, it just... Smackdown was very much a wrestling show in that 03, 04 period when you look at the roster that they had. And this seems like the perfect kind of like sports-based storyline that would work for Smackdown. That may not work for Raw. Um at that time and you know it, it's kind of shocking that they, they wouldn't go for it but at the same time it was still very much you know uh, al wilson and all that sort of oh, craziness going on as yeah, well yeah, so i yeah. mean you know it, it do you think that it was a bit too or, or does bob maybe think that it is a good idea but it just maybe didn't fit with the time or something like that or, or, or did, did he get the 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 
the idea maybe that he didn't fit with the time. I know that sounds awful, but like they they they're kind of moving into a different area at this point. And Bob is yeah, kind I know of what you're saying. Still, like you know. I know what you're saying. I can't answer for Bob on that one. I got yeah. the impression that uh, I mean, I think it gets to a point where you've been with the company for X amount of years, and they just reach a point where then they're going to keep you, they're either going to keep you around indefinitely until you get to a point where you go, do you know what? I just don't physically want to do this anymore. Um, like, dare I say, a Mark Henry, who was there for a comparable amount of time, and they still wheel Mark out every now and again, or until recently they did, for things like Battle Royals and Royal Rumbles and, and whatever. And I think Bob was probably going to be in a similar situation had he wanted to be, but it got to a point where Bob still had some some gas in the tank and wanted to do something productive and he didn't want to be frustrated anymore. And he's certainly at the fact that at the point, this point, he was past 40. And after so many years of the wear and tear of the road, then you've got enough money, you have had a you know you're fine to call it a career in that big league and especially if wwe are going to not disrespect you because i don't believe they disrespected him and i don't believe he felt disrespected but if you're going to bust your butt and just feel always that little bit disappointed it can lead to you thinking well maybe a step away yeah no i, I understand that one one thing i've got to say about the book especially being a fan of, you know, that period where not a lot of people were fans, you know, the new generation <laughs> period and, you know, the pre-attitude era period. One thing I really appreciate about the book is how detailed it is, including Bob talking about him sort of coming up with different attire changes, including the lime green attire. You know, I, I kind of marked out that. Terrible he idea. He mentioned Terrible that idea. His, <laughs> but the fact that he mentioned it in the book, you know, I was just like, yes, that, that's the attire that he wore at WrestleMania 10 when his 10-man tag got cancelled. Oh, I'm absolutely. Doing. I had to ask him about that one because that, again, just talking from a fan's perspective, that always stood out to me as well. And yeah. thinking, lime green, why would you do that? But the 90s were a different time, man. You know, 1994, lime green was great. <laughs> and the thing is, I guess if you're driving a, a car in lime green, you're not going to be missed or anything like that. You know, you've got to you've got to stand out. I guess that's exactly <laughs> it. You wouldn't know this about him, but Bob <laughs> now he likes to celebrate his Thurman plug days by wearing lime green regularly. He wears lime green trousers. Uh, no, I'm lying. Of course he doesn't. Oh, you! I know. You, I've ruined oh, it for you. No. Yeah, well, the thing is, uh, when I met him, because uh, the thing is, don't get me wrong, I love hardcore Holly, but I give him about ten Sparky plug you know, trading cards and uh, posters and stuff like that. And he was just like, oh, God. And I'm just did like, he yeah, did he curse? Did he curse you out? He didn't, actually. He may, have want <laughs> he may have wanted to, but it was for a show that we were putting on. So I think it was just like, right, I'll sign them. Right. <laughs> I don't know if he was happy about it. but um, There you go. Yeah, but um, I asked him about his uh, the racing gear that he had, the WWF racing gear. And he said that that got stolen, I think, because he had the leather jacket. Um, that he wore to the ring, but when he actually drove the car, he right. had the the bright orange neon, you know, checkered uh, full suit, and he said that got stolen because I was just like I would wear that around the house as like pajamas, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just looks really comfortable. <laughs> you know, I didn't know. I've never asked Bob about that. I'd always envisioned when he was doing the the racing 
on the racing circuit that he would wear his wrestling gear, full boots, spandex, everything. Well, wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think it'd be comfortable? You'd have freedom of movement. You'd. Um... Although if there was a crash, it'd probably be quite flammable. <laughs> it would be flammable, and if you ripped something, you'd be exposed to. You would know about it, yeah. You, so. you would know about it, so yeah. Maybe not the best idea, but you'd be in a car, so that'd be all right. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get off that. But the, the um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something there, and you put me. I, I rudely took you on a tangent. Yeah, with... <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like a podcast should be about tangents and conversations and stuff. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, the, but the the one thing about Bob, I guess the what came across to me is that it was evident that wrestling was a big part of his life, but it wasn't his life. He had other things that he could do. And the that time period in 97, when he was barely on TV, he was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just go back to my normal job. Go back to work, yeah. Go back go to do work. Do some welding, and, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that, that very much comes across that he's, you know, he's really, it seems like he's content with life, which is... Absolutely. And, yeah, he is. Um, he is. And the book was certainly, there's no malice in there the stories from his point of view told very truthfully and i mean there were some receipts given so i mean were you were there um any criticisms towards you with any of the books in terms of some of the stories that came out from different wrestlers because i know like kevin nash um replied to bob and about a couple of stories in the book and all that kind of thing no i never heard anything back from any of the wrestlers and i didn't even know that kevin nash had said anything about bob um I think, again, I, I can remember what was written about Nash. And I know that there was nothing that we put in the book that I hadn't double, triple checked with Bob and said, hey, look, are we crystal that we're going forward with this? And Bob calls a spade a spade. And none of it was done with malice or no. rancor. And the same with the other books is when somebody's been called out or somebody has been given a receipt, as you say, then... I think it's been balanced. And I give you the good example of Triple H in Bob's book in that Bob buries him at the same time as promoting him in that he says that there are a number of situations where he felt that Hunter did deter Bob's career because of the power that he had. Um, but at the same time, Bob says that he wasn't the only one, that he understands that political games get played left, right and centre. And also that Hunter was always superb in the ring absolutely brilliant at what he does, knows the business inside out, and also pretty decent to the boys overall. So I think what you've got there is you've got objective and balanced. And that, for me, as a writer, is when you can bring that to the reader, that's when people buy into the book and it has credibility. Whereas if it was nothing but a series of receipts, like I think we've seen in some other writing that's been done about other wrestlers, and you can feel the hate, the issue, falling off the page at you, that's when you disengage as a reader and you start thinking, oh, either you are, this is just an agenda book or you're, it's a whinging book. And I'll give you an example, um, and I don't care uh, if this goes out. <laughs> Justin okay. Roberts, Justin okay. Roberts' book, I hated it. Um, it felt to me like it was just uh, whinging. And I didn't understand why there was, it kept coming back to, it felt like poor me, poor me. I'm trying so hard. I was trying so hard and nobody understood me. I tried so hard. And it just felt like it was an agenda book. Yeah. I've got to say that some of the best books that I've ever read, and I would put uh, Bob's book in there, that there's a re-readability about it because it's so full of facts about his career. It's not spending his time talking about 
other wrestlers at length. It's talked about other wrestlers, but who he was interacting with. And like yeah. you say, it's not just about, you know, doling out receipts and all that kind of, or doling out insults or whatever as well. And um, yeah, no, that, that it very much comes across, you know, as a, it, it has a timeless quality to it, I think, that you could read it at any point. And, um, well, that's what we aim for, because I think we realise that, uh, and it's something that I've tried to do with all of the books I've been involved with, is if what you're going to do is just simply tell a chronology of a person's career, you can go back and watch that. You can yep. check it out. What you, A person reads a book to figure out what was going through the guy's head at the time and what was happening that they didn't see. And it's for the extra information. It's the uh, the value-added extras that you get from the book, I think, that sells the book. And like you say, it gives it that timeless quality. I've got to say the thing with having a co-author as well, because that, that can be a fine line that I've seen with several wrestling biographies largely to be honest the official wwe biographies where you can tell that the actual wrestler has had very little input in uh <laughs> like I, I i don't care i'll throw out teddy biasi's wwe book it was like there was yep. a bit where he was like i was in when they'll say i did something and then the next paragraph is them explaining what that thing is it's like you didn't write that that was you know that's just it was, a look. yeah so, i think it was tom coraluzo who wrote that with him uh, i'm sorry i've got to say <laughs> yeah I, I but i've got to say this uh i am 100 percent in agreement with you because that is one of the books that i come to first whenever anybody asks me which ones didn't you like so much and it wasn't that it wasn't interesting and teddy's story is fascinating but when I was reading it, I just didn't hear the million dollar man's voice. No. It, it and didn't I want do, to. It didn't do any justice. I think that the, the WWE Andre the Giant book, like the Bertrand Hebert book, which I can't wait to read because I've heard nothing but good things about it. Um, you know, the, the WWE attempt, just it just didn't have it for me. And the, the thing that I kind of do put books down pretty quickly when I just, I'm reading it like... It, I hate bringing up names, but like the Jimmy Snooker book or the first Tito Santana book, because I know the new one with Kenny is really good. Um, and I think that's probably the reason why there is a second, you know, uh, Tito Santana biography. But the the example that I always bring up in the DBRC book is um, it was like, I was in Royal Rumble 89. Royal Rumble is a tournament where the winner becomes <laughs> king of the ring. And I'm just like, what What does that mean? Like, that's, that's yeah. a biography that has put that out. I remember Honky Tonk Man saying once that he never read any biographies after attempting to read Arn Anderson's and the first chapter doesn't talk about in his rookie year that he wore a wig that got like ripped off and he was just like ah this isn't going to be very factual at all so yeah Honky doesn't strike me as the type of person that would have much time for books I think. No I don't know Honky but I could imagine <laughs> that he would be very much uh, a case of yeah let's move on. Yeah, have you seen that get, recent? Give me someone of... out here to wrestle. I don't care who it is. <laughs> have you seen, seen that recent uh, lockdown picture of him with the grey hair and the beard? No. Yeah, you would not guess it was him. Uh, I've got to check it out. Lo he's looking good, but you know, you just wouldn't guess. Um, I think you know, hair dye is in short supply in uh, you know, in coronavirus twenty. Well, I tell you this. I, I talked to Lanny Poffo recently, and you would not believe he is not the absolute picture of health at. What is he now? He's uh, 60 plus. Hmm. I think he's 65 now. And he is, uh, he's in good shape. He is looking healthy and well. And you just think he was on a Florida vacation rather than in lockdown during coronavirus. Yeah, I, I was able to chat with uh, Lanny uh, too recently. And it's just, he he just doesn't seem to let anything get on top of him. He just no. seems... He's the most happy-go-lucky wrestler. I when, the first time I met him, he had his... Uh, do you know the, the pink genius outfit with the motorbike? The WrestleMania 6 
one yep. that yep. most famously known for. I was like, how much? Because I knew you were selling it, and he was just like, <laughs> and he was just like, oh, I don't think you can afford that. And I'm just like, oh, you're such a heel. <laughs> and it was just like, young and, man. And yeah, he was Did... like, what would you have that for? And again, I'd be like, well, just to wear around the house. It just looks really comfortable, you know. Um, but yeah i did I, i'll tell you this we will get into different subjects but like um i i won uh because i'm a i'm a big collector of stuff and i won uh, a bobby heenan monday night raw jacket a, a long time ago uh the same seller also had giant gonzalez's outfit uh but it wasn't the it wasn't the tights it was the the top but it's kind of like one of those baby grow things where you put the the, the buttons are underneath <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and he had signed it and everything, and I was just like, I want that more than anything, and I didn't win it. Um, but again, you would you would try it on, wouldn't you? Like, well, you... absolutely. Well, I, if you had, I knew you didn't win it because if you had won it, you would be wearing it right now. Absolutely, uh, it would be. It would have holes in it. It would be, you know, because long time ago now. But um, be amazing. It would be amazing. Uh, <laughs> we've all we've all got to have aspirations in life. <laughs> the I should hook just... you. You know what? I should hook you up with Dylan. He's selling a bunch of his old stuff, so you can get your hands on a bunch of Dylan. <laughs> He is unashamedly selling. It's like Gary Coleman selling in The Simpsons, selling off his life. And uh, oh no, Gary Coleman in um, what's that show? The the puppet show they did on stage, Avenue Q. Uh, a Q they, uh, Avenue Q. Yeah, yeah. they keep talking about Gary Coleman selling all his possessions on eBay. <laughs> it's like Dylan selling off a lot of stuff. It's great. Well, the thing is, I and I try and tell people this, but they don't understand that I love the new rockers like so much because the new. So rockers- you're the one. I've got to have to tell Al this. You're the person who loves the rockers. Look, rockers. I, I love the monkeys. I love the Partridge family. <laughs> and I connect with Leaf Cassidy because he's, you know, he's such a dork about 60s pop. And I'm just like, so man. So like, you know, I'm one of, you know, I, I connect with Leaf Cassidy and his wife not long ago on um, on Instagram, I think, took a picture of herself wearing the Leaf Cassidy gear. And I was just like, I want Amazing. that Leaf Cassidy gear. Jess like, is that, brilliant. She's, yeah, she seems like she has like, such a good sense of humor. But I don't know, does I'll when he was talking about like Avatar and yeah. Leaf Cassidy, does he really feel like I, I don't know, but like, does he feel ashamed of it? Or is it kind no. of like you did what you got to do sort of no, thing? No, no, no. I think the main thing is Al looking back is frustrated in in elements uh he, he doesn't drag it with him anymore because there's no point but i think he looks back and he is just baffled by his own blindness by going out there continually perpetually and trying to have matches that they didn't want him to have the example being when he came out as avatar the first time he went out and he tried to have some form of competitive match with a jobber called brian walsh and the idea was he, you go out there you guzzle him you make yourself a superstar you get over and and instead, what he did is he went out and he gave the kid some offense. And he was so used to being that wrestler who does work with the other person, you work together, that he didn't go out. And when it was his turn to be the guy who guzzled the other guy, he didn't do it. And that's and he forever got cast as, as that person. But no, there's nothing for him to be ashamed of, certainly with the Leaf Cassidy gimmick. And it's funny when they talk about the they talk about wrestling being you turned up to 11. Yeah. And it's funny because Al is so totally not like Leaf Cassidy and at the same time so totally like Leaf Cassidy and there's it's elements of Al's personality that are so absolute in there in Leaf Cassidy and 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 I love that period like I can't say like we were talking about how much I love WrestleMania 9 which we'll we'll get into we'll censor that out later 
all the listeners will be like, oh, God, he's not talking can't about admit, WrestleMania can't 9. can't admit to that in public. Yeah. Can't. I have. I, I should have worn the cap and the T-shirt and everything to show you how much I love that event. Um, so disappointed right now. <laughs> I, uh, okay, we're going to get I into I thought you this. were an actual fan, you know. I just... <laughs> Oh. It's like a Trojan horse. You're trying to bring the system down from the inside. Nobody may admit they like WrestleMania 9. It's really upsetting, though, because every time you do, like, an anniversary of, like, WrestleManias and stuff, I wait for, like, April the 4th when they're, like, 27 years since WrestleMania 9 because then you just see the hate, the visceral <laughs> hate. And I'm just like, oh, I'll just, I'll just come off social media for the day then, shall I? Because if I say anything, then it'll just get completely, you know, dismantled. But um, There were, I've got to say, I will... Have- I'll confess there were some good moments. There were some, uh, any card where the best match is a Tatanka match is not for me. <laughs> Would you say the Tatanka match or the Head Shrinkers Steiners match? Head Shrinkers Steiners was very good, apart from the bit where they nearly killed Scott by dropping him over the top to the floor. Mm-hmm. And the Frankenstein didn't go so well at the end of it, if I remember. Where it was, he caught him just about, and then Samu did just this spectacular flip for what looked like no reason, but they went with it anyway. Yeah, Scott jumped a little bit to it. What I love after the end of that is Bobby Heenan's like, I want to see a replay, and Jim Ross is like, We're not going to see a replay. <laughs> and I, think, I think there's a reason why we're not going to see a replay. Yeah, good rib there. And I'll tell you what, I think, I think Brett and Yoko was actually heading towards match of the night, uh, and Brett had done, evidently there, Brett had done a masterful job of putting together something that really worked for both guys. And from what I understand, Yoko just ran out of steam. And when it was time for Brett's comeback, Yoko said, can't do it, let's go to the finish. And with with another three minutes on that, where Brett looked like he was actually managing to wear the big guy down, uh, and and maybe just an extra chapter in the middle, that would have been. Because nobody wants to see Brett and Yoko go 20. Um, 12, 12 would have been fine, but eight or nine or whatever it was, was too little. I think as well that the, uh, Yoko kind of realised that as time went on because you would see we've went completely off piece now. <laughs> we'll get back like at some point, but like um, it's a good I chat. Think, where, does, who cares where it goes? Let's keep going. That's true. Yoko kind of if you watch the matches going forward with Undertaker or Luger or even the later Bret Hart matches, okay, you would do the. I hate calling them rest holds, but you would do that nerve hold for like a long period of time, which would add time to the match and stuff like that. But there were there was a lot of psychology behind this match. Like people don't realize, like for me, and I know some some night free gets a royal slagging off as well because of the the finish and everything. But I understand why they did it because one, I think if you'd have made Lex champion, there's no opponents for him to face. Ludwig Borger against Lex Luger would, would not have done very well. Um, Yoko had to remain the champion, but if you look at it in the entire context of the year, it extends the storyline beautifully because Luga can't get a title shot now, so he has to petition to get into the Rumble, and then he finally gets in it, and then it's the draw, and then it leads to Mania and everything. But I think there's just something beautifully bittersweet about the fact that Luga never wins the belt. Like, there's someone yeah. has to come second place, and obviously it kills Luga off completely, but the, when, when Luga knocks Yoko out at Mania 10, and Mr. Perfect doesn't count and stuff like that. That, for me, is one of my favourite finishes of any Mania ever. Like, the crowd reaction, because no one is expecting Luger not to win that match. Everyone's thinking that it's going to be Luger and Brett. Now, when Perfect doesn't count because he's trying to get the managers out of the ring, you hear the bullshit chants. But I think it's genuine anger. It isn't just like, oh, we're getting jobbed out of a finish. It's genuine anger that Luger hasn't won. 
But Yoko's been knocked out. So when Brett faces Yoko in the main event and Yoko falls off the ropes and with a bonsai drop, everyone's like, oh, what a shitty finish. But he possibly had a concussion from being knocked out by Lex Luger. It's like real subtle storytelling. Yeah, that, I think like, they could. I think they were maybe a bit too subtle on that one because I did think yeah. what a bullshit finish there. And I think maybe what they could have done or what Yoko should have done is if he knew that was the finish, he should have had a few moments earlier on in the match where it looked quite clear that he was woozy, that he kept going down to one knee, that every time Brett did anything, he was really struggling. And the commentator should have been telling that story that Yoko was discombobulated, that Luger's elbow earlier on had knocked him for six. He might be working with a concussion because then it would have fed into that, that you get to that point where he goes to the top rope. And because as it was, it just came out of nowhere. And especially since Yoko moments before had been seemingly vibrant, threw his arms up in the air in celebration. And it just didn't make any sense. And it made yeah, it look I'm... like Brett, it made it look like Brett didn't beat him. It made it look like Brett got lucky. Well, and that was I'm... no way to, that was no way to crown Brett on the big moment. I, I do agree with that, but I, I think it it helped keep Yokozuna in some kind of like, oh, I lost by a complete fluke. You know, I think I think flukes are okay sometimes. I would say uh, I think I think you're right. I think they are okay sometimes, but I don't think they're okay in the main event of WrestleMania, and I don't think they're okay when you're trying to say this is the guy we're going with. And after that, Yoko was never relevant again in the main event scene, and so at that point, you do you just have the person who's going over him win cleanly, much like when Brett took the super kick, one, two, three. Yeah. You know? But that's fair enough. I mean, if you look at Mania 9, how cleanly Hogan beat Yoko, which, I mean, by Mania 10, we're not meant to remember that because Hogan's gone by this point. So as far as the general public is concerned... What a shit Yokozuna, show that was. Yeah. Yokozuna has been champion since WrestleMania 9. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I noticed about that, because I did some, uh, like a watch along commentary thing, which I didn't put out because I was just like, this is just me justifying why I like WrestleMania 9 so much. And no one's going to want to listen to that for three hours. <laughs> I mean, but this is why we'll, we'll get off the subject pretty quickly. But the one You're thing I'm never going to win was, this conversation. Uh, You're never going to win the WrestleMania 9 argument. Did you notice that Oscar from Men on a Mission is, uh, do you know when Brett Hogan, Brett's telling Hogan to go to the ring? Yeah. And outside the ring, the person behind them is Oscar from Men on a Mission. He's like, yeah, really? You know, yeah, yeah. Because I never knew that. Vince met Oscar like the the night before, um, because I guess he performed in Vegas or he lived in Vegas or something like that. And um, it's kind of weird because like Oscar, you know, I, I love him and I would love to chat with him one day, but not a not a great rapper. Let's face it. But no, I'm idea, with you entirely on that. One, I love yeah. the idea that Vince McMahon, the whitest, squarest person in the world, is probably you know just. <laughs> going like raising his hands in the air like you just don't care and stuff like that absolutely just, whoop there it is vince <laughs> like yeah. he's just it's very mr burns like that he's just never experienced <laughs> this counterculture rap before and you absolutely. know absolutely we could have got pn news though you know so who who who's better men on a mission of PN news? i think it's time for a pn news comeback is he still around somewhere can we get can we get him in unbelievably he's um for someone his size he's still around which you know i'm guessing he took good care of himself good lad yeah get him in. but yeah and i think we could get him in and i think we should give george gray a call and we can get akeem back to do a dance off with pm news i think that would be a winner i would love that did you ever see the video of um it was in the ecw arena where demolition teamed up with akeem and um it's a fan cam shot and uh i think akeem's coming to the ring or whatever and he's 
doing his job. It's it's one man gang, but with an Akeem hat, basically, because I don't think Brilliant. he can fit in his Akeem costume. Because that's why he didn't wear it at Mania Seventeen because he couldn't fit in it anymore. That is the only reason. I think it's the same with Tugboat. He couldn't fit in his Typhoon gear, so he came out as Tugboat instead. Really? Lost some weight, yeah. Um, wow. So the demolition music hits, and just one guy in the audience is like, "Shit, man, you guys are going down. Demolition's gonna kick your ass." <laughs> <laughs> I, still... I would, I would be entirely the same if Demolition just came out and just you know whipped everyone. I think it'd be tremendous. It's still real to him, damn it. You know, I always wondered why. You know, when London and Kendrick were about to overdo Demolition's record for longest tag team champs or New Day was or something. I think London and Kendrick were heading towards it. Yes. And especially when New Day were about to do it, I can't believe they didn't bring Demolition back for a one-shot. I agree. I agree. Well, they did it with... Um, do you remember when Santino did the honky meter and he was yeah. trying to beat... the honker honky... perfect mountie meter. And, <laughs> and then honky actually came out and got a title shot. That was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, no... Demolition need to be in their Hall of Fame. You know, oh, absolutely. I, know, I know the WWE Hall of Fame, it, it's important and everything, but I know to some wrestlers it's not everything. You know, like if they don't go in it, I don't think some of them are overly fussed. You know what I mean? But I, I, I just want Demolition merchandise. That's what I want. I want them back absolutely. under contract so we can get some more, you know. You want to have the, the studded, like, bondage gear, don't you? That's what you're after is what you're saying. I, I can't promise that i'm not wearing some of that right now underneath Absolutely. this t-shirt so, you, know. you talk incredibly well for a man wearing a ball and gag <laughs> well you know it's that uh it's that gag reflex and i've got really big <laughs> mouthpieces so, you know. hey uh, you, you know we'd, i'm gonna i'm gonna throw it back here to something we're talking about lex luger at SummerSlam, right as and, i always do well can i just say as well the, the the palace of auburn hills is getting knocked down this week really mm-hmm. that's a yeah. great shame yeah. so are we blaming lex luger for that as well <laughs> Well, do you know what? Sorry, I know I'm, I'm completely interrupting you, but like the the when the balloons come down at the end for a count out win, it's so well, presumptuous. It's anticlimactic. Yeah, that's it, exactly what I'm. It's say presumptuous. To you. That's the thing. Yep. It's like if Yoko had won, does that mean they wouldn't have dropped the blue balloons? They would have just dropped red and white <laughs> for the Japanese flag. Or I was going to think the same thing. A whole load of white balloons and just one red balloon in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Fuji probably had. Um, some contingency plans for that threw salt at them until they would dissolve or something I don't know but I was thinking about how the end of that match we're talking about that and yes there is I think there's value to Luger not winning the title there I think it makes sense for him to come close but not get there and I don't know why but I've actually I found myself it's funny you bring that up because I found myself thinking about that particular match a lot recently when I was just taking my lad out for a walk and um he's he's three so he's not got much interesting to say yet but so my mind drifts at times and one of the things I thought is how easy it would be to rebook the finish of that match so just visualize this if you would at the end of it Luger smacks him over the head with his elbow guy goes flying to the outside of the ring and what happens is maybe you get the head shrinkers and Bigelow and whoever else is associated with Cornet and his lot to come down and kind of block off the ringside area, right? Or maybe they've been there already to turn the tides against Luger. And at this point, Luger tries to go after him. They get in the way. And then all of the baby faces that come out at the end, so the Steiner brothers and Tatonka, whoever, they come out and there's a big old ruck at ringside. Luger goes out and tries to get Yoko up to lift him back into the ring 
therefore showing that Luger isn't a schmuck who just stands there and waits for him to be counted out and not win the belt. Because that was what killed him, yeah. is the fact that Luger, like a dick, was just standing there and dealing with Mr. Fuji or whoever while he was missing his chance to win the title. And then he was surprised when he didn't get the belt, which makes him look like an idiot. Whereas if he'd gone out and been trying to get him up, and then what you could have also is as the ref is trying to get the get the whole mess taken care of, yeah. you could have one of the other wrestlers come over, like a Crush or a Tatonka, and they help Luger get Yoko back into the ring. It goes back into the ring. The match continues. Luger hits the slam, hits the big forearm of death again, gets the pin. One, two, three. They hand him the belt. All the balloons drop, and there's a justified massive celebration to end the show. Then the next time you have on Raw, Cornette comes out, and he is put this legal case together that another wrestler helped Luger get him back in the ring. Therefore, the result has been overturned. Still your champion, Yokozuna. So Luger doesn't look like the complete knob that he looked like. <laughs> He's proved that he can beat him. And Yoko is now not only the big fat heel who can still beat you by sitting on you, but the cowardly heel who has to get a lawyer to do the business for him. And then he can continue to be unbeatable because Luger, the problem was Yoko was never presented, despite being that big, he was never presented as the guy who beat you because Brett had him beat, Luger had him beat, Undertaker was clearly going to beat him. And so he was never this guy who could mash you in the way that I think they wanted us to believe. But by doing it that way, Luger now is not an idiot. Luger's a guy who got a bit unlucky because Tatonka and you could play this back into what they did with the heel turn next year with Tatonka, is Tatonka cost him because he put his hands on Yokozuna. I feel like we are kindred, kindred spirits. Indeed. Like, that, that's wonderful. Like, did you ever see um, the New York Rumble, the fan cam show? No. I, I don't want to spoil it for you because it's it's widely available. I think it's on YouTube as well. There It was uh, a week or two before the Royal Rumble 94. So right. the opening match is uh, Ludwig Borger against Rick Steiner. And that's where Borger messes up his ankle and then he's just gone. That's a main that. event anywhere in the country. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the title match is Yoko against Tatanka. And um, Yoko, they know that the next time they're coming to Madison Square Garden is for WrestleMania 10. So they were really good at that point of just having storylines just for the Madison Square Garden or just for the Boston Garden or to make you come back the next month. So they really go hard with Yoko as a heel. So he beats Tatanka and he just wails on him and then he goes for a leg drop, but he's running and he skids. So he Ooh. just jump and I, I, people can't see this, but his ass across Tatanka's face like that it is one oh. of the worst things I've ever seen. It is horrendous. But um, there's a, there's a, there is a 30 man rumble in it, but uh, they, I think they were a bit short on talent because they bring back Sergeant Slaughter and Iron Mike Sharp is in it as well. So it's like, Iron Mike Sharp. Yeah. It, it's kind Amazing. of like this alternate world 1994 Royal Rumble where some things are kind of similar um, the person who wins it is different, so you should watch it because it is very—it's entertaining. Yeah, I will. It's, it sounds like the greatest Royal Rumble where you look at it and go, "Who the hell's that guy?" <laughs> well, the greatest Royal Rumble isn't that when the 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 Saudi prince wanted to bring in Yokozuna, and then Vince McMahon was like, "Well, Yokozuna's dead," so it was yeah, like, we, well, have we'll just bring "We have a problem with that." We'll bring Get in a super fat guy. Well, that's what they did, and I'm I'm assuming I I'd heard, and maybe I'm being un unkind, but apparently. 
because that's why they always want the big names there, like Hogan yeah. and etc. They wanted Yokozuna, <laughs> they obviously yeah. couldn't make it, and so. they got Hiroki Sumi instead. <laughs> and he only lasted like two minutes as well. But um, yeah, so the thing is, okay, because again, I do talk about 1993 WWF at great length. I know that everyone loves Royal Rumble 92. I love it. Don't get me wrong. It's one of the greatest Royal Rumbles ever, possibly the greatest. But part of me prefers Royal Rumble 93, uh, the Rumble Why? match. Why? Part of it is because of Bob Backlund. Um, he comes in with no reaction. And if you watch that Rumble match throughout, you see the crowd being physically relieved when he is able to save himself from elimination. Like the, the commentators don't talk about it nearly as much. When Yoko eliminates Backland, I've never seen such disappointment from the fans until <laughs> when when Daniel Bryan got eliminated in like 2015, like unjustifiably, uh, yes. like halfway through the match and it killed the entire match. Like, oh, yeah. That was the only time since then that I've seen such disappointment in an elimination. It was like, again, it was one of those bittersweet things where, you know, it, maybe it should have been Backlund and Yoko in the last two, but... It's know, like it, Forrest Gump when he stops running. <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> this is, and, and, and also, Jan Gonzalez makes its debut. I don't care what anyone says. I've got to tell you the story about Paul London. If, I interviewed Paul London on stage, and he told me this incredible story about an idea that he had for a storyline that he, uh, he wanted to pitch. But uh, Jan Gonzalez, to me, is no more ridiculous than Kane's intro. You know what I mean? Like, if you've never seen Jan Gonzalez before, it's like, holy shit. Like, he's, you know, he's kicking the hell out of The Undertaker. Oh, he you can hear like people that. scream when he mm-hmm. comes. It, on, on the actual Rumble 93, when he's coming down the aisle, you actually hear some young girls screaming. And, and, and it really helps that, like, DiBiase backs off from him. IRS doesn't want to go to the ring. Damien Demento's scared to go to the ring. And that stuff was like the that. killer, is when Damien Demento's <laughs> like, dude, that guy is too weird. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see any of Damien Demento's um, online return like about 10 no. years ago? He no, kind of, no, no. He, he returned, cut some promos, and then went back to the outer reaches of your mind. Like Good old Damien. <laughs> Gotta love him. Did um, he still have that whole weird beard and hair thing going on? Yes, he did. Tremendous. Oh, he lives it, that can, gimmick. Yeah. Can you imagine him and a team with him and Sin Bodhi? <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. That would be cool. I, I was... Uh, we're going off on so many tangents now, but I, th- I think that's the way to go with it. We'll leave them wanting more, you know. Yeah. Um, why was I talking about Roman Night Oh, yeah, I just generally love it. Because you're just putting over 93. That's what you're doing. Is that, This has turned into another love-in for 1993. It has, it has. Um, well, I interviewed Todd Pettingill once, so, like, it's just... I, and he is a genuine hero of mine, and I think he was just like, you need to get a life. And I was just like, yeah, but you're great. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I, I kept them on for, like, three hours, just, like, dredging over every minute part of his career. And he's just like... i tell you what, Todd was, because I saw the the recent In Your House NXT show mm-hmm. where Todd did the intro, and immediately he was the best announcer they had. And it was his bit was brilliant. He, to me, he has the inflections in his voice. He knows how to emote. He has the facial expressions. Like, again, I know 93 and everything, but like sort of they changed in 93 a lot of the presentation of WWF and things like Mania and Monday Night Raw really made them, I guess, more contemporary because they weren't just sat behind desks wearing suits and stuff like that. And I think Todd was a big part of that. And for for what it's worth, I think uh, Rob Bartlett really... 
added a, that New York feel to the early Monday Night Raws. Um, I, you know, if you listen to his last Raw, uh, his final Raw, it has no energy to it whatsoever. I think he's sick of the job, and I think yeah. they're sick of him by that point. That was the taping where one of my favorite Raw moments of all time, the Sherry Luna catfight, Oh, yeah. And they rip Rob Bartlett's clothes off and everything. Well, that is also, it's the following week. It's um, <laughs> it's the week where um, uh, Friar Ferguson um, made his debut and also his last appearance. <laughs> <laughs> One too many. One too many. One too many. Well, that's the thing. He had the match, which everyone remembers. But then the next week, which was the same night, he attacked, he saves the jobber from Bam Bam Bigelow. And then he kind of pulls his tunic up and starts doing like a crazy leg sort of road dog dance and it was just like i don't know what this is meant to be i think he was meant to be, he's meant to be drunk isn't he because he's drinking wine on the way to the ring i don't know i didn't see that i didn't see that one i, don't, okay. I know recently i was doing a i was doing one of my shows the a to z's and i was yep. doing what was it the best big men in wrestling and we actually had to go with friar ferguson for f because we couldn't figure out another f <laughs> well that's the thing though he could wrestle like and people kind of forget oh that. yeah like, you know, sure. if, if you watch him in yeah if you watch him in uh in calgary and whatever when he like, was mccann singh absolutely mm-hmm. yeah um, and norman the lunatic yes <laughs> i'm a bit worried about you because we're talking about you you're now sticking up for rob bartlett so um should we just skip ahead and you can start telling me why art donovan was the best wrestling commentator of all time i can no i can't defend art <laughs> <laughs> I can't. He makes a perfectly good show, unwatchable, <laughs> just yeah. from his commentary. Because I'm not is, sure I'd call it a perfectly good show, especially with Piper and Laura in the main event. Okay, no, that is the match that kills the entire event. But if you, I think all of the matches on that show were at least perfect. Own Heart One Two Three Kid is the best two minute match I think you'll ever see ever. I agree. I agree. Um, and I think the show had a lot of energy to it. I think that's because they weren't listening to Rob Bartlett ask how much that guy weighed or calling Jeff Jarrett a cutie or one, two, three, yeah. two, a boxer yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. you could feel the sort of visceral sort of Vince is probably laughing down, you know, in gorilla and then gorilla monsoon and Randy Savage are just like shaking their head. I'm sure they turned his mic off for the Piper Lawler match. I don't think you hear I, don't know, I haven't been brave enough to try the show again uh, since I saw it. Yeah. Piper Lawler should have been one of the greatest matches of its time for psychology and for whatever reason, it just, it did die a death. I can't defend that match. Yeah. And, and, and I've got no if, idea why either. If anyone knows me, if I can't defend something from that period, <laughs> then, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, our Donovan did kill that bit of you, but it's still far more watchable than Kingdom 95, which oh, I, yes. just, I just Absolutely. find depressing. I mean, there's just, it, it does have some good matches on it, but don't know what it is. Re- I think really, he, Sean and Kama was good. No, it was for not. a fifteen-minute draft. It was okay. I mean, it picks God, up near the end and everything. Godfather and... should not be wrestling fifteen-minute broadways, and Godfather would agree. I'm very confident. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Brett and Lawler was okay. It was okay, but it was. Oh no, no I was, that's, I'm, I'm not saying there were. You know, Brett I always Lawler... felt. That, I always felt there were things. Whenever Brett had an okay match, you're always disappointed because you know how much better you can get. And that's the thing is I always felt that a lot of the things like where Brett, especially in 95, when he was clearly unmotivated, things like his mania match against Backland, there were moments in it and you can't question Brett's how good his work actually is technically. But when his heart 
no pun intended, wasn't into it, yeah. then it was it was a guy doing a paint by numbers rather than doing a masterpiece. I really and you know he's capable of the masterpiece. Absolutely. And the thing is, Brett Backlund at Survivor Series 94 is one of my favourite matches. But it's a good match, Brett Backlund yeah. at Mania 11, I don't know how much they knew about what Piper was going to do in that match. Yeah, cause... Piper. I love the bit where he actually, uh, he asks, he's, Brett's got Backlund in a hold and he asks Backlund if he quits and then Backlund says no. And then Piper goes, Brett? <laughs> Brett, yeah. goes, Brett just laughs and goes, yeah, no. <laughs> at WrestleMania, yeah. no, I know. Um... But that's Roddy, isn't it? That's just you just got to know that was Roddy just and you hear the whole audience laughing it's like Rod that was not the place no <laughs> Brett 95 though it's when you look I mean Hakushi Jean-Pierre Lafitte is a very good match that I think that is a very good match forget about yeah. Diesel at Survivor Series was a good match great match great um, match Bulldog at In Your House 5 um, oh that's a hell of a I preferred that to the SummerSlam match there you go see I mean I think people kind of assume that Brett's 95 because he wasn't champion or wasn't in main events was just having nothing matches and I mean okay the matches didn't really mean anything um but there were there were a lot of good matches and that Brett had in 95 um oh yeah Brett had great matches every year that he worked it was just I think that that year the truly great matches were for special occasions rather than as standard as they had been in previous years that's true um yeah <laughs> When I think of Bretton 95, I think of the role with William Shatner. Um, when Shatner monkey flips Jeff Jarrett out the yep, ring, yep, it's yep. just like, what the hell's happening? And it's just <laughs> like, it's so like pandering to the audience to promote his new show that night. And then Bret Hart comes out and saves William Shatner, and Vince is like, Bret, with his good friend William Shatner. I'm like, they've never met before this. One. They're not good friends, like, um, like how, what was it, Burt Reynolds put Bret over, in his opinion. One of the best technical wrestlers in the world today at yeah. WrestleMania 10. That was something, wasn't it? My good, close, personal friend. <laughs> I met Burt Reynolds in 2004 and I asked him about it and he doesn't. Re- he didn't remember much about it. I bet he didn't remember a damn thing that happened that day. Burt did not look like he was with it that day. Well, he had a broken arm, so he was probably on a lot of painkillers. Um, painkillers, is that what we're calling it? Okay. I, I, I think he tried. He tried more than Jenny Goff did. I think she was oh, just... Absolutely. There but think, there, there were people that were dead when they woke up that day that tried more than Jenny Goff did. <laughs> Yeah, um, Ronda Shear, she was great. Ronda Shear was great. Donnie Wahlberg gave it a go. Gave it a go. Bless him. <laughs> Mr. Perfect. <laughs> you know what, as well? I didn't realise for years, because they kept saying NKOTB. I didn't even think that that was New Kids on the Block. That didn't compute that really? he was a member of that. Yeah, wouldn't you have, wouldn't you have thought that they would have got them up, them up singing America the Beauty? Don't get me All wrong. the right stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just halfway through the show is like a break. You know, like how they well, got they could have done it while they could have done that while Yoko had Lex in the nerve pinch because there was a, <laughs> a solid three minutes where they could have got in a, a bit of a musical act there. Come from the ceiling, just and absolutely, and you could have had Oscar come out and do the rap verse that goes in the middle. <sighs> you see, see, this is why we should be booking WWF. The fact that I even just I I don't call it WWE. It's just force of habit i just can't call it wb not a snobbery or anything like that it's just for no. years you know you just call it WWE. i wonder how do you know when people when it became wwe and they were still saying wwf accidentally yeah. do you think yeah. that happened when they changed it from wwf to wwe bob backland probably called it, it probably st- it probably still is to him wwf <laughs> i don't know but i tell you what what we're doing is spending we're living 25 years of the past or 20, 25 plus right now. And so, um, 
yeah, I, I can see why Todd told you to get a life. <laughs> well, the thing is, when I, I watched that in your house, because I, I'll oh, I'm admit, kidding, I, I'm I, kidding. I, it's, lo- it's lovely to talk about this kind of stuff. It's great fun. It, it's all I ever talk about. Yeah, I'll be honest. Like, <laughs> WrestleMania <laughs> Nine, an associated product. An associated products. Um, I love that uh, Todd's kind of gimmick on that in your house pay per view. The recent one was that he was stuck in the nineties. That he didn't realize that like VHS didn't exist anymore and stuff like that. I'm just like, you bring this Todd back every, you know. Every week he did that from oh, home. I pay to so, see that. Yeah. yeah, he had a green screen, so he actually did it from home. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, wonderful stuff. So yeah, we should probably talk about your career a little bit. Um, I don't know how long we've gone. <laughs> we've, about we've, got a, we've got about an hour so far. This is kind of like your eight Z show, but we're cramming it all in one episode. Oh, whatever. Uh, we just go with it. It's fine. There's not so, much to talk about. There's not much to talk about of interest in my career anyway. So it's probably best we just talk about WrestleMania <laughs> Nine instead. So that that doink match, huh? <laughs> One of the greatest finishes of all time. Thank you very much. Um, so it was, yeah. actually, it was. Fat men begin with F. There's the, uh, so you, you got Friar Ferguson. Not fat men, big men. Big men. Yeah, I mean, Dylan and I had a big conversation about that. And one of the most interesting things, and I would encourage people to go check it out. It's Wrestling A to Z. And the episode we're talking about here is, I think, episode 10. And Dylan and I talk about, we do the first half of the alphabet in that one. And in the second episode which is coming up um i'm going to be doing that this next week then we get to the end of the alphabet and we find out that dylan's perspective on a big man is is different it seems than when we started the conversation in that for him a big man is a, is kind of a, a more robust rotund guy than a tall guy because to him once you get above six foot two everybody's tall <laughs> uh, and he says this he says for me he says for him, Seamus is pretty much the same height as The Undertaker because there's only so far back his neck can go. And that does make sense to me. Yeah. But at the same time here, we're talking about best big men in wrestling. And he's saying who you got overall. And I'm saying The Undertaker. Of course it's The Undertaker. And, you know, seven days a week and twice on Sundays. And he's saying, no, nah, Undertaker's just a tall guy. And yet when we talk about Kay, Dylan's comment is Kane. Well, hang on. Kane's a tall guy too in that case. Make make your mind up, Dylan. (laughs) It it, it is a weird thing. I remember um, when they did those Legends of the Round Table shows, which I think they should bring back, because I I don't know if you could, to be honest with you, because it was Gene Oakland and Michael Hayes, all smoking cigars and drinking whiskey around the table. It's brilliant. um, What could be better? Brilliant. Yeah, I I don't think you could... Jim Ross, I don't feel, was completely into it, but Gene Oakland will, you know, give him a... Give him a little glass of whiskey and a cigar. I think he, yeah. you know. <laughs> I think certainly these days, with the fact that every single thing is poured over on Twitter, and then there's a hashtag against everything, then I think you would be asking for it for people with regard to the things like the Me Too movement and anything where everything can be taken out of context, or even some people might speak up against some of these people saying some of these things. Then that could be a real shit show. I think uh, WWE have kind of they, uh, they preempted it in a way to me with the network because they put um, they put disclaimers on everything because I mean you could watch a show like a, a championship wrestling show from 1982 and someone will come out and say something really racist towards a, a black heel manager or something mm. like that and it's just yeah. like it's so commonplace on those old shows like well look at Gold Dust people would used to chant faggot and they were encouraged by the promotion to chant faggot at him and that was to my mind that was never right but at the very least back then in the mid 90s that was 
I won't say it was deemed acceptable, but it was certainly something where you could, um, I, I don't know how you could put it, but that was more, it was certainly way more socially acceptable then yeah. than it was today. And even what, 10 years after that, John Cena and Vince and Booker doing a sketch backstage where Vince says, uh, what up my nigger? As some yep. form of joke. And right now, you know, at the time, that was raised eyebrows. Could you imagine if they did that now? Yeah, I, I would like to think that they've learned from that now. But wrestling's always been based on stereotypes, though, isn't it? I mean, because yeah, you know, the, 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 the thing is, I'm, I'm, I've had this chat with several people in I, the time period that I love and everything, so many either racial stereotypes or... Yeah. Um, all kinds, of, not just racial, but I mean, like, if you're religious, you're automatically evil, or if you're gay, yeah. you're automatically <laughs> evil, or if you're British, half the time you're automatically evil or posh or whatever, yes. or, you know. And it's just, I was like, well, they've, well, they've never been to Newcastle, have they? No, well, there's a trick. Well, no, they've been to Newcastle. I've seen them a few <laughs> times. You know, they're, they're, I remember, I remember once. Um, I think it was Drew McIntyre. He came out in, in front of the Newcastle audience, and he was like. I'm not even in character now. I, I just hate Newcastle. <laughs> the, crowd, the crowd just absolutely, you know, they, they got one uh, wrestler to come out with a Sunderland player, I think, in Newcastle. Ooh. And that went down well, yeah. Um, and, and But the thing is, though, WWE not knowing, they brought out the face with the Sunderland player going like, oh, this is near enough, so we'll he's bring from, him out. Yeah, he's from England. That'll work. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, uh -uh. so with these kind of stereotypes, I'm just like, am I racist because I like this stuff? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I like yeah. your concern. Like, I've had these genuine, like, especially a couple, and I, I don't talk about this for this reason, but the whole Me Too stuff recently, I'm just like, wrestling fans largely have a very low mor moral barometer, I think. I have Jimmy Smith <laughs> erection figures on display. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, I think you really have to separate the art from the artist sometimes. And I, I think it's context. I think yep. it's context. And of course, the, the biggest touchstone on any of this is Chris Benoit in that when you go back and you look at the career, it's a body of incredible work. But when you compare the body of work that he put together with the bodies that were found in his house, then that's a hideously horrible conversation to have and a very awkward one and a very important one. And you can't celebrate uh, and everybody's got to come up with their own decision on that. And I can't celebrate the wrestler for knowing what he did. I can't watch his matches the same way, but I can objectively watch the match and go, that is a superb piece of work. Yeah. Um, I don't like the man behind it. it. For me, it's especially painful because I was there in Madison Square Garden at WrestleMania 20 when he won wow. his biggest match of his career. And I was, I was one of the guys going mental in the audience, going tap, 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 when he had Hunter in the crossface. And the scenes of jubilation when Hunter did tap, because nobody believed Hunter actually would. We all thought Hunter was winning. And <laughs> when they rang the bell and they gave him the bell, it was a yeah. people, random people, jumping up and down, hugging people nearby. It was a moment of real celebration. And then to see that story on TV and what it became and what the man did. And there's no point speculating about why he did it. He did it. And it decimates moments like that. But I think you've got to look at everything in context. You can't look at all things in a vacuum. 
And when you go back to the 90s and you look at, they did these things, this is where I think you can draw a line and you can say, well, you can't blame people for doing things that were deemed acceptable then. Now, you can't hold them accountable for what they thought was okay. And it's like a a film, like Trading Places, for example. Mm -hmm. It's a brilliant film, but could they make it now? Absolutely not. Probably coming to America. In fact, all of Eddie Murphy's back catalogue, you probably couldn't make now. Does that mean he should be demonised for doing it then? No, because back then it was okay. And that doesn't mean it's his fault. That's society as a whole. And we've evolved. This is true, but... I mean, this is getting terribly, terribly serious. But like, um, do, I know. Do you not think that I didn't sign was... on for this? Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about Mania and Mania Nine again. <laughs> what with Yokozuna uh, and those Japanese cameramen uh, going Yokozuna number one? Ooh, ooh, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Um, and Hogan calling him that Jap. Hmm. Hmm. Um, well, when Luger came out, for the Body Slam Challenge, one of my favorite days in wrestling history. I don't care what anyone says. When when the network uploaded that in unedited. I was just like, it's like they <laughs> crawled into my mind and were like, what does Paul want to see? They, did you watch it? They've got like 10 minutes straight of the bus driving down the road. They no, I didn't see none it. Of, they edited none of this shit. It's like three hours long of the entire Body Slam Challenge, which is about an hour long itself. And then 10 minutes at a time of a bus, front view of the bus driving somewhere along a road. And then it'll cut to Lex Luger in like a, a drug rehab center going, you know, I am your hero. You must support me at SummerSlam. <laughs> or doing like a radio show or a kids TV program. And That's then, amazing. Like, amazing. Oh, he, he shows up at the, um, when they released the WrestleMania album in America in July. So it was horrible. Hell of an album. Hell of an album. My first ever CD. Um, it, it's wonderful. It's so genuinely uplifting that wrestlemania song like i don't care what anyone says do you know was how this like the, was this the album that had bret hart singing a love song on it yes do you want to know a fact about that yes that song was originally written for david hasselhoff and <laughs> it's true and uh and bret was, was bigger in germany <laughs> he, oh that's a good question i think Hassel, the hoff might beat him but bret was huge in germany bret but, was um, huge in germany yeah the Huff, because uh, this had a melody, and if you listen to the words, it fits into the melody of the backing track. But Brett, I liked the song. I actually sh- quite liked the song. <laughs> he does a Shatner with it, basically, and just talks it. But it has a really catchy chorus and everything. But apparently, the Hoff was just like, "No, this is too cheesy." So it got shelved, and that's why Brett. Everyone else sings in character, but Brett just has this love song <laughs> about being dumped. <laughs> so it is too cheesy for the Hoff. But the hitman will take it. The hitman will take it. Um, oh yeah, to give you an idea about my collection, uh, I have. Do you know the Jim Duggan song USA? USA? Oh yes. Yeah. That got released on twelve-inch picture disc, uh, seven-inch <laughs> cassette, and CD, and I have like all four, you know, versions of that. And I, I took them to him to be signed, and he was just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I. I I, I I try not to be like Kathy Bates in Misery when I meet wrestlers, you know what I mean? Go yeah, away. yeah, yeah. And here's yeah. all your merchandise. But like, Do you ever get that moment where a wrestler looks at you and says, your parents must be very proud? <laughs> I don't I don't know of any... And out of the wrestlers that I've interviewed, I think they are genuinely... They like me because I, hopefully I'm knowledgeable about them. But don't get me wrong, I'm not interviewing... Um, I don't know, someone from the 60s who I'm not really going to know about. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. interviewing Duke the Dumpster Drosy. I know his career inside out. You know, They're all very appreciative of anybody who has 
committed to what they've done because the whole thing's ridiculous and we all know it's ridiculous but people who buy in to it and commit themselves to it with such passion how is it possible to dislike that this is true i i got to um th- i haven't told anyone this yet and i haven't made an announcement yet but i was talking to uh midian last night and uh i i was just reminding him of things that he completely forgot and i think that made him be fine with chatting with me because yeah and and i know that like sort of people are like oh you sell, you sell yourself short as a podcast host or whatever because i'm just like i don't know how i get these names on the podcast but i would like to think that it's because i have a good conversation with them and yeah knowledgeable and show my appreciation and stuff like that and it's one of the reasons why i've got some of the books that i've got because then when i talk to the wrestlers then they can see very quickly that i come with some knowledge that i take what they've done seriously as as insane as much of it is and they won't have to explain over and over oh i did this thing because i'm i'm like yeah i know and in fact like you've just said there several times i have reminded them of things they've plumb forgotten mm-hmm. so for you to be able to do that with these guys it gives you an instant credibility i like the thing so i'm just i'm just so self-deprecating though when it comes to this because there's so many wrestling podcasts out there but you know the the one thing that i hear from a lot of the wrestlers i mean guys like ahmed johnson who does not do podcast interviews or sid you know especially with someone who oh i love a bit of sid brilliant oh he was he was great i mean everyone was like you got sid like how how does that work and i was just like i, I just asked well it was a softball season <laughs> well i didn't throw him any softball questions you see right. so that's how so uh, we could know. have had soft we could have had softball holly yeah that would have been not soft core holly softball holly and soft and sid they could have been tag team been great i did have the soft the balls <laughs> I, 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 I did have the idea that when uh, bob holly d- teamed up with billy gunn for a bit that they should have been called the butt plugs but um i, I like it yeah that worked. yeah see yeah. do you find that like again because okay perception with some like bob holly al snow and hornswoggle is that they're a little bit grumpy you know um do you, do you feel that you can just like take the piss with them a little Horse, bit? Hornswoggle being grumpy. Uh, that's the perception, you know. No. Well, uh, yeah, but if you watch the the Sean Oliver interview, it's like uh, there was the perception that he was a bit of a bully, and he was just like, yeah, just you know. <laughs> well, he'll be grumpy with you if you're a dick to him. Okay, then, no, that's fair. But enough. I, I'm I'm generally not addicted. Well, actually, that's a lie. I am a bit of a dick to him, but Dylan's well, a dick what, back. I mean, and, so you yeah. feel like you can be? Yeah, it's a bit of a. Yeah, I'm a. I mean, if you hear the podcast, sometimes I will call Dylan out on things, and he'll do likewise, and we're just dicks to each other. Sometimes it's very much like um, how Bruce and Conrad can be to each other. It's the relationship I have with him is very different to the relationship I have with Al, and different to the relationship with Bob. It's everybody is different in that. But yeah, I've I've called Al out on things. I've called uh, Bob out on things. I'll. You know, it's they are just regular guys with sense of humor, just like the rest of us, and they're different senses of humor. And it's you know, you you treat them as you'd want to be treated yourself, and you poke fun, and they poke fun, and you have fun. Well, that's the thing. I mean, with me just being a fan, and with you know a certain time period meaning so much to me, it's almost like they don't feel like people they feel like this kind of kind of like you know and 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 they are very flattered by that but they they are just people and it's kind of that is kind of a thing that when i talk to wrestlers you know i i kind of get my head out of that pretty quickly because i realize that we're gonna have a conversation and i don't just want to kiss the ass for like an hour uh but at the same time you know i don't like 
scandal for the sake of scandal or trying to get salacious information and stuff like that. And I think that is something that a lot of the wrestlers appreciate as well. So I'm like, yeah. I'm guessing that is the same. Like, was the with the the books that you wrote, there was obviously a trust element there. But yeah, did they did they say? we don't want to talk about certain things or would they come no. to complete open books? No, uh, there was not a single subject that any of the three that I've worked with have wanted to hide in any way. There have been things that we didn't put in the books, uh, but very few. And I can tell you very specifically, there were two things that we took out of Bob's book, which was naming one person specifically in conjunction with something which we thought was unfair and an expansion on a point we'd made that similarly we felt would be disrespectful and they were things that we thought were amusing at the time and we took back out later and they were the right decisions to make and similarly with Al's book then one of the things that you, you've read Al's book haven't you yeah I, I love the self-help um yeah. aspect of the because one of my favorite yeah, yeah, books yeah. is Heenan's second book which is purely a self-help book but it's oh, kind it? of it's kind of written in, you know, as Bobby Heenan sort of thing. So, you oh, know, I can imagine it must be brilliant. And, and so there's, you, you really do take stuff from it, though. Like the, oh, yeah. the, the latest Jericho one, which is kind of like a self-help book as well. It's um, this is the four-letter word one, is the it? The four-letter word one, yeah. Just, That's the only Jericho one I haven't read yet. The first three I've read, that one I haven't read yet. It, it's a lot of fun. It's a, just a different take. And I mean, you know, but I'll snow with... So I, I just completely interrupted you again. So with Al, with that book, was that kind of a... I was going to say something about, what was it? Oh, yeah, with the thing that we did with Al's book is, you'll notice in there that we we talked about Mick Foley, but not a lot. Hmm. And we mentioned it when it was necessary. And I think one of the things that we have been... Uh, a lot of comments have made about that. I've seen a few comments talking about how they were expecting a, the book to be a series of pot shots receipts because in Mick's books, he took the piss out of Al left, right and center. Al was the punchline for Mick for so, so long. Mm. And in response, Al and my initial idea was that we were not going, we were going to get even our receipt was going to be, or Al's receipt was going to be to not mention Mick once in the entire <laughs> book. Even though, hilariously, even though Mick's career is so intricately linked with Al's in many ways on screen and many ways backstage and some of the things that they did together, that it would be impossible to tell the Al Snow story without mentioning Mick. And they're good friends, you know, and this is this all just, it's ribbing, it's just mucking around here. Yeah. And we thought that what would be a good rib was to actually not mention Mick once, but instead when we talked about them winning the tag team titles, for Al to say that he won them by himself, but a vagrant wandered in off the streets and got up on the apron, <laughs> so Al was happy to share with this bum. Mm -hmm. And just we were going to go through and do and just do every time we mentioned Mick, it was going to be a simile that the audience would understand we were talking about Mick. And then the publisher, when he read it, was like, I see what you're doing. I don't think it works. <laughs> so Al and I were forced to go. Yeah, actually, you're probably right there. We'll be sensible here. But we just thought, you know what? I don't think if we we went into that business because it was funny when Mick did it to Al and Al doing it back to Mick. He We were just saying, do you know what? We don't want to do that. That's there's no point to doing it. Nobody's reading it for that. And that was Mick's gimmick on Al, but not Al's gimmick on Mick. And Al's 
that's that's just not where we were going to go with it so it was a case of we had an idea but the editor put us right on that one and we'd experiment with things but that was a thing that came out of the book and as for dylan's then i don't think there was a single thing that he and i spoke about um that we said i don't want to put that in just i think some personal details that as with anything you just you talk openly with somebody and then you think right i don't want to frame this in this way but in many cases that is to protect the other person not yourself all three of them have been really keen to make sure that they take the heat in situations i mean al for example um in regards with one of his divorces um taking the heat completely and i know that having been divorced myself i know that there's two sides to every story but there's no point in your autobiography trying to say, well, I was right, I was right, she was wrong. And it takes Al's perspective, as with Dylan's and anybody's, that I think when you get to a certain age and a bit of perspective, you look at it and you go, I can't and I shan't talk for the other person. I All I can do is accept my own fallib fallibility, the fact that I'm fallible. I can accept my own part in the proceedings and own up to it. And it's not for me to comment on the other side. And I think that is the exact right way to do it. Is the sort of outside personal lives of the rest, was that something that you were prepared for with those books? Or were you kind of, and I know that you, you, they are not presenters as like just Wikipedia chronological yeah. order sort of thing, but um, was that something that you, like, who brings up wanting to talk about personal life? I'm guessing it's obviously the wrestler, but is it kind of like does thought process have to go into it so that then no, it just happens it was ev everything's been very organic um mm. in everything i've done with these guys in with dylan especially it was vital to do it because the thrust and the importance of dylan's book is to talk about dealing with his condition and just how uh, the achondroplasia understanding how much that's affected his life but also how much it's not affected his life and how much it's given to him as well as taking from him so that's where the duality of the book comes in and i found that fascinating but when it came to al and bob's book we really didn't focus a huge amount on their personal life we looked at how we, we put in elements of their personal life because we didn't want to leave the reader feeling empty-handed but we had to be realistic and know that the reader came for the wrestling not the childbirths and the weddings and, and the divorces, that we touch on those and we discuss them. But unless there's a story there, what's the point telling the story? That's true. I think it, it has been a little while since I read Bob's book, but I I've, I've seem to remember at the end, he was like, well, okay, here's a list of things that I'm just going to clear up now. Um, yep. And was was this just a list that you had? Like the, Everyone thought that he was married to Bibi, the nurse. Um, and he was yeah. just like, I, I don't know where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Was, that, was that kind of like a right let's get these things out of the way so because i mean when when i talked to kenny casanova about veda it was just veda was like oh god do we have to talk about the eye in japan and all that kind of it was just like, well we kind of should because it's a big part of your career um yeah but I, I've, talk, know, I've talked extensively elsewhere about veda <laughs> um, I'm, I'm i'm very glad that kenny did that in the end because i i was the first person to to work with uh that project in particular really and yes that was it was lined up a project between me and vader and wwe and ecw press okay and we we had a a deal on the table and vader ruined it for everybody because he would not stop fucking around with the deal and i don't wish to 
talk ill of the departed because they can't defend themselves. But Leon was, um, he was fair. He was, his, his words to me were always respectful, but his actions were, he'd tell you one thing and then another would happen. And it took, to put it into perspective, the amount of time it took for Leon and I to start talking about the project to finally deciding for WWE and me and ECW to say, do you know what? This isn't going to be the right project for us. No offense. We're going to, we're going to back away from this one because we realized it was going to be a hard project to bring to fruition just because Leon really wanted it just so. And he wanted it very much with this rewrite, this, this, this. It had taken nine months to get from, hey, Leon, can we talk about a book to actually we're going to walk away and i wrote the other guy's books in that time do you, do you feel that he would or he, that he Ken, maybe... kenny i've got to start kenny has got to have the patience of a saint <laughs> to have seen that book through I've so got bless to... him but at the same time uh, you know I've, i think it was during that writing process when vader found out that he didn't have too long left to live and i think that changed the entire the process of making may have may have um i I just wwe produced book on vader who was only there for two years and wasn't used the best in those two years it feels like did did, did he give the impression that he would have felt restricted by a wwe published book like would they have stepped in no it wasn't it wasn't that at all um what it was was there was the the financial element which okay. he was fiddling around with a lot and that was a bit of an issue and i i tried to explain over and over look it doesn't honestly the the upfront payment not a big deal because if it sells it sells um and that's where the real money's going to be made on the royalty here at the, at the other end of it so yeah. you can't push too much and also he was it felt to me like some of the time he was still in 1993 in terms of his value at that point in the industry. And again, I I don't like pissing on a guy's uh, legacy. And he was a major player. But by this point, which was 2015, 2014, when I was talking to him about it, Mm -hmm. then he was not that guy anymore. He had not been in a major spot for 15 years. And the only spots he'd had had were very brief and back on TV. This is before he came back for that Raw where he came out and he, he squashed Heath Slater. Yeah. Um, so he hadn't even had that recently at that point. So I think he had misinterpreted his val- his upfront value. And it was, try- it was hard to have that conversation with him, but I did have it. Um, it was still difficult to get a result out of him. And the biggest issue I have with it is that he kept talking to me as if I didn't understand that wrestling was a work he kept trying to pitch me on the fact that he was uh, the the only ever world champion on three different continents at the same time and it was all a shoot brother and it's just like dude really you know this is not now you know you you could have pulled the wool over my eyes back in 93 and i might have gone with it Mm -hmm. but if we're going to write a book together then you can't be trying to tell me that you legitimately beat the shit out of Nobuhiku Takada over in the UWFI because that was real, brother. You know, no, it wasn't. It was stiff. And I know that you guys weren't working, working the way that you work in American wrestling, that it was a, um, it was a half and half hybrid, but it's, you know, I know full well. And the fact that he was, it felt like he was trying to convince me 
and it felt like he was trying to convince himself. Were you telling him that though? Yes. And oh, and I'm guessing it didn't go down too well. No, he was fine. He was fine. He just um, okay. I don't think he was listening. Okay. Um, I really don't think his head. And I just maybe I got him at a really bad time um, in his life. But I know that when when I saw years later that there was. Uh, this thing where he would not show up for a booking and then there was that whole kerfuffle in London a few years ago with, I think it was Will Ospreay. It was, was yeah. Yeah, Uh, where he said, yeah, I'll do this, yeah, I'll do this. And then at the last minute, I'm not coming up my hotel room unless I go over. And none of that surprised me um, because the other guys that I've worked with are all guys where they tell you something, you take it to the bank. And I didn't feel as comfortable, for whatever reason, with Leon, that when he said something that I could, that was a, a cast iron guarantee. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he's not the only wrestler who's done that to anybody. But my, my limited experience is with many of the others, the handshake's as good as, as, good as anything, as good as a contract. Um, and I've never had a problem at all with Bob, with Al, with Dylan, with some of the other guys. Uh, the guys that I've had worked with on the forward, Steve Austin, Kofi Kingston, um, Kurt Hawkins, you know, yep. these guys all absolutely spot on. And Leon, I think I must have just got him at a really bad place, bad time. And I don't think he was, I don't think he was listening when I when I would try and point out to him that, look, if we're going to do this, it needs to be not for the money. It needs to be because we're, we're chronicling your legacy. It, it needs to be because, and I, I, it wasn't like, Hey, I want you to do this because I tell you, I was explaining it and trying to say, look, people are going to see through it. If we present the book as if it were a shoot, the people who are going to buy this will immediately turn on the book. Yeah. And it, it just, it wasn't going in. I haven't read the book yet. Um, it's one of the only books by Kenny that I haven't uh, read yet, but based on, the other books, like even the Brutus Beefcake book, I was I, cynical. Me, I was just like, well, Brutus Beefcake's kind of known as a bit of a bullshit. Um, so it'd be <laughs> interesting to see. But the honesty and the detail that that book goes into, uh, I was I was quite shocked. I don't know if you've read Beefcake's book. Um, I haven't. No, 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 I haven't. I heard him do an interview on. Um, where was it? He did. I, he did a guest spot on the roast of Bruce Pritchard. And I'm sure I've heard him on on Austin or Jericho along the way. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hey, this is kind of this is kind of good. I quite like this because I always liked Brutus when I got into wrestling initially. Uh. And hearing him tell some stories, and I thought he was very self-deprecating. That's definitely how the book comes across. Because the opening chapter is uh, the the uh, the accident, um, the, oh, the parasailing, the accident. parasailing yeah, yeah. accident, and mm, yeah. the level of detail that they're going to but it also has kenny's uh macabre sense of humor in there as well like but brutus talks about like he swallowed the roof of his mouth and all like like really just awful stuff and there's a story when he wakes up and um hogan's by his bedside apparently this is true like i don't know if you remember the raw when beefcake come out the week before he got his face kept with the briefcase He, he gives the whole story about like, oh yeah, I had the power of sale accident, then my wife left me, then my dad died, then my mum died, all that kind of stuff. That is all true, um, yeah. but also builds up a, a great story as well. But um, he says that Hogan was just like, oh, come on, let's let's go for a walk. And he's like, I can't move. If I move, my face will fall off. <laughs> <laughs> So he's just like, oh, come on, brother, it's fine. So he's like walking with Brutus, and I think he even taps him on the back. And his fucking eye falls out. <laughs> 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 
I'm just, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> like he says as well, like because he had the, his face was steel at this point. He he's in the shower and he hits his head off the shower rail. He can't feel it. All he feels is just warm liquid running down his face, and he looks and it's just blood everywhere. Oh my um, god! So yeah, no, I, it be it will be. And I've spoken to Kenny, and it'll be uh, when I read the book because Vader did sign um, the place cards for the book, and I really want a signed uh, book from Vader. You know, um, it'll be interesting to see what Kenny gets out of Vader. Yeah, in yeah. The book. I can't. I think I. I was just unfortunate in that for whatever reason I must have got, I don't know. And I can't speak to what was going on in, in Leon's personal life, but my experience with him was sadly not, not a particularly positive one. It wasn't a negative one. It was just disappointing because I w- I'd hoped for more in terms of what we could do in terms of a project together. Um, but some things don't work out and, you can't say, and I won't say that that then categorizes him as any different sort of person in my book. It's just that my experience with him was not strong. And I hope that Kenny had a great experience with him. And I'm I'm sure the book's excellent, but I don't know whether I'll get past um, the experience I had of him. And the funny thing is that we talked about Brutus there being self-deprecating. Yeah. And it's the same with Bob. It's the same with Dylan. It's the same with Al. And it's the same with everybody I've spoken to in that, you know, even Steve Austin, when I spoke to him, this is the biggest name in wrestling history, pretty much. Yeah. And he was just talking to me completely man to man, no fucking around, just cool as you could like. And not acting like I'm the big I am. And I think that that is what you want and when you're going to get the best out of anybody in a project like this is if they can understand their ultimate that they're not hugely relevant in the biggest picture of the world they didn't cure cancer yeah they didn't invent um world they didn't create world peace they didn't create the bomb they didn't you know they only the rock's going to be the president out of all the wrestlers (laughs) so you know and and the sooner the better frankly and I don't think they take themselves that seriously. And I think they, I think that is a, a good thing to have because really once you start, and no matter who we are, once you start taking yourself too seriously, that's a dangerous place to be working from. That is true. That is very true. Well, I think we've went like the two hour Broadway, um, but we should talk yeah, about- Yeah, we have. And we've talked about nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is why, well, hopefully you enjoyed this enough that we can, we, we need to structure it a bit more. So you've got the right idea, like actually structuring your shows. <laughs> I do not do that. But like when I talk to wrestlers, obviously we talk about their career, but we, we were going to talk about your books and then we kind of went all over them. Well, we talked about one of them. This is true. Well, when um, I did a, a mini series with uh, Colin Delaney, who I ended up becoming friends with and we did a lot of things. And that was based off, right, we're going to talk about your career and then we talk we talk about WrestleMania nine at length and how much yeah. we both love that show. So then I think he was like, okay, let's do more of that. So then we started reviewing all the roles leading up to WrestleMania. 9. <laughs> so what we've done here, what we've done here is if my podcast is the Royal Rumble, which uh-huh. has structure, structure one, two, three, well, in, in theory, at least one, two, three, mm-hmm. all the way through yours is a battle Royal. Get everybody in the ring and let's just see what happens. Yeah, I, I have said to certain wrestlers that my Skype list is is ridiculous now, just with wrestlers 
you know, world pretty cool, isn't it? When you look at it, though, because I look at my fo- I'm looking through my phone and I'm seeing, OK, Tommy Dreamer, Edge, Eric Bischoff, Steve Austin. <laughs> it's like this is cool. You know, in, in, if you if I could go back and show 25 year old me yeah. what I've got in my phone right now, I'd be like, dude, cool. That's the thing. Anytime like I get to interview a wrestler, I'm just and it's at like two in the morning. I'm never like, oh, God, like, you know, I'm just like you have to put things into perspective that like someone that you have watched for over 20 years is like, you know, who you have the action figure of, who you have, the, yeah. you know, the ridiculous piece of merchandise of on display in your room, which like makes it makes you wonder why or how you have friends sometimes, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, it's never something that like sort of goes over my head, how like big of a deal it is. But um, where was it going with any of that? Our podcast, well, this podcast making no sense. But also some sense, and absolutely. Hopefully, we can do this again. Um, absolutely, I think there's a, there's there's a sequel in the works here. Oh, it's about having structure. That's the thing. So yeah, I'm about so yeah. With the Skype list, I was just like, I said this to Duke the Dumpster Drossy. I was just like, you know what, I should do. I should just add everyone into this group chat. And yeah. Just see what happens. Um, because, Last man standing. <laughs> well, I know that he didn't have nice things to say about Ahmed Johnson, and I do have Ahmed in there, and just you know. Um, Oh, I got to get them on the A to Z in that case. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> well, I've got. I'm going to do so well, and hopefully soon with Meanie. And I want to do weirdest gimmicks with Meanie because, of course, Meanie was a pretty weird gimmick in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I want to get Bob doing tough guys, and that'll be good fun to do. So I want to try and, uh, and build things that people could do. But Duke would be awesome for. And I've got to figure out which would be the best subject for him to talk about on that because you could do um, dodgy gimmicks with Duke as well, couldn't you? Yeah, uh, we we have done something kind of. We, it ended up being like what this is. It ended up just being a chat about just randomness, and I think he kind of enjoyed that instead of the yeah. like the we did too. The first one we did, we did a watch along of Royal Rumble '95, and I was just like, "Oh, you're only it's a in classic." But yeah, well, I was just like, "You're only in this for like a minute." So it's kind of you know. And you drew number thirty, dude. What's wrong with you? Oh no, that was the next year. That, that was '96, that was like, wasn't it? See, this is why we get along. You know this stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, yeah. I was thinking the other day about all the people who've drawn number thirty in the Rumble and really only survived like two, three minutes. That's like the worst gimmick to have. Is you come out at number thirty and you can't even make it to the final four. It's like, come on. Yeah, that's, th- that's 30, the way of telling people. Thirty has never won. Or has it Rubbish. Now? 30's won loads of times now. 30's got th- as many wins as 27 now. Has it? Oh, see, that's Taker, the thing. Taker, Cena, and um, somebody Edge else won from 30. Or something? No, I don't know. Don't think Edge won from 29. And I'm sure somebody else has won from... Oh, and Hunter in 2016. Oh, see, you know new stuff better than I do. So, like, I can yeah. tell you everything until about, like, 1998, and then I'm kind of, like, start falling off at that point. Yeah, but... i still got a few things now. I can't tell you with as much clarity 2000 on, because mm-hmm. uh, I could tell you the 90s, like the back of my hand, and probably the early 80s, but the newer stuff, once you start getting into that point where... Um, you have two brands, two world champions, and it's kind of the era, the way I look at it is, especially when I start losing track of the Intercontinental Championship, that's when I start thinking, right, I'm, you know, we're in the John Morrison, Jack Swagger years. And I'm thinking, I, I can't remember all of this now. No, and, and well, I think, I mean, maybe at a stretch, you could probably name every Intercontinental Champion, but you certainly couldn't do every ch- title change. Oh, hell the, no. I couldn't even... I couldn't even tell you who the IC champ is right now. Probably, um, I know it was I know it was Nakamura a while back, and then Strowman won it, and then lost it to Sami Zayn. But oh no! And then they did um, AJ and Daniel Bryan on SmackDown to win, it, and AJ won it. Oh, is I that would, right? I wouldn't know. I really wouldn't know. I know they've just unveiled know. that US title, which I'm kind of. I don't think it's awful. I think it got a bit of a 
unfair slagging off. You know, yeah, I, I saw that yesterday, and I, I thought it, it's very much in the style of the big belt now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, at least they didn't, it? didn't whack a WWE logo. No, but the branding's on point in that they're going with the very angular thing now. It's it's all chrome. It's all very sharp edges mm-hmm. where it wasn't for a while. But I, I like that from a design perspective. At least they are consistent now. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, but okay, so you're 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 a fan of belt. We're talking about belts here. Come on, and you're a wrestling fan. So best WWE championship belt. Oh well, the the winged eagle. Obviously. The winged eagle, obviously. Yeah. Do you have one? No, I, I, that's one thing that I, I had a million dollar belt, a, a full size replica. Um, yep, I got that as well. I, that's one thing that I've never really delved into is the replica belt. It's partly room and it is partly money. I'll be honest, but yeah, it's at that point now. I'm kind of I'm kind of snobby that I can't have something like that with a WWE logo on it. Because um, <laughs> the thing is, I've got the mini replica belts. That figures toy company made, not the current ones, because these everyone seems to be collecting the new ones now, where they make the the uh, memorial, you know, the WrestleMania title in a mini replica or something like that. Right. Yeah. The the figures toy company ones with the WWF logos on the first ones that they did, they are like hen's teeth trying to find those at the moment, and I'm only going for the block logo one as well because they never made a, they only made an Attitude Era tag belt and an Attitude Era European. Um, but they did white, blue, and black winged eagle. They did white, blue, yellow, and black intercontinental. Um, and but they did just make a million dollar belt, which I'll allow because it doesn't have a WWE logo on it. Um, I think we're through the looking glass now on the merch front, aren't we? <laughs> oh, we'll do we'll do a merch show at some point. You need to find me. See, uh, for anyone listening, turn chuckle on Instagram. That's the, everyone shows like sort of rare pay per view t shirts and all that kind of stuff because it's like t shirts, it's figures, it's um, replica belts that people kind of show off. Um, but I've got like four unopened bottles of pop from Israel from 1994. <laughs> um, Macho Man, Razor, Tatanka, and someone else undertaker brilliant or, or like the packets of crisps in this country i was gonna say i like those crisps the 92 yeah like yeah undertaker, the dead spicy flavor for the yeah that was my favorite one the dead spicy flavor is brilliant <laughs> well i've got packets of, I, they don't have the crisps in but i do have the packets framed because i was upset, upset because i could remember that the bret hart flavor crisp not not they tasted of bret hart but the <laughs> i think they were the cheese that they were there was some chicken onion pickle onion or whatever and i don't like those so i was disappointed because brett was my guy I don't think I ate any of the flavors. I think I bought them because you got the Summer Sun Night Two trading cards with them. I think that oh, was the you? only that was the okay. only reason. And and if you cut the tokens out, you could do mail away things. So there were mail away figures, and those are obviously a big deal now as well. But, oh, the Hulk Hogan yeah. Superplex one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, you you could do that back then. Um, but there wasn't any like roast chicken flavor. It, there weren't like nice flavors. Like the it dead was, spicy was good. Dead Spicy was, if I had to choose one, it would be Dead Macho Man was, um, that was cheese. And I'm not big cheese. on like, yeah. Just it, cheese. No, macho cheese, obviously. Macho cheese. <laughs> that sounds revolting. I don't want any macho cheese near me, thank you. <laughs> well, you could have you could have called it machismo. Machismo, like yeah. Well, that'd be a razor a month thing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, macho cheese should be the name for a covers band like that does that does like the YMCA and stuff like that. That'd be amazing. <laughs> that that would be incredible. Um, oh, we could talk forever about merch. <laughs> I think we okay. could. Yeah, and, and, and we've probably lost half the audience by this point. If you're still part listening, two, part two to be continued. Definitely yeah. part two. So, 
you have the podcast and you have other projects. So can we get a scoop? Have you got any other wrestling biographies coming up? Uh, I today sent off a proposal for another one. Are you saving this um, for your podcast? <laughs> no, okay. um, but I'm, okay. I'm not. I won't tell you who it is yet. Uh, but it is from the nineties. I was, was going to guess who's. You would, you would be very well, if only. Uh, you would be very interested in in it. I have no doubt. But I'll say no more because I don't want to say anything until um, I know more. But if it does go through, and I think it's probably fifty fifty because it it, it might be. There are hurdles, shall we say. But if it goes through, then you will be amongst one of the first that I tell. How's that? That's wonderful. I'm, I'm very excited about that. Um, so, yeah, I want to thank you uh, for being a part great of pleasure. Hands, Thank hands you for having me on. It's been, been a great chat. And the thing is, we're not editing this because if there's one thing that I hate, it's listening back to my own podcasts. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's too it, much work. It really is too much work. That's that's sort of like exposing the podcast a little bit too much. But like, if I know that we've said something completely, you know, that sh really should be taken out, then you know. But I think we're fine. I think we're fine. No, I think we'll be all right. We'll I mean, that conversation, sued. the conversation in the middle where we use some various words that you can't use these days, it was all in context. It so was all good. It was all in context. Um, yeah, Ahmed I, I, Johnson said that word once, and I was just, and he was just like, "Oh, you can say it," and I'm just like, oh, "I'd really rather not." Yeah, like, I'm not sure I can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, no, Ahmed, you can say it. You can say it, yeah. <laughs> um, you're bigger than me, you know. Um, I'll tell you this because it's, it's kind of funny. Um, he, We did this on video. I have a video, three-hour conversation with Ahmed Johnson, but I don't put the video online because if he wants to scratch his balls or whatever, you know what I mean? I can't, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Um, so he was just like, oh, this isn't going out, is it? I'm just like, no, it's not. Because he, he wanted to stand up and like pick a wedgie out of his own. <laughs> Well, that is Ahmed all through and through, isn't it? That was his deal in wrestling. He was the wedgie guy. He was the wedgie guy. So yeah, I think he might have done that for my benefit. I guess. He, oh, I've got. Oh, did, did you I, pop? Did you pop while he did it? I, I, I popped when he started. Um, when I got him to say like "You're going down" and stuff like that. when Savio did his Los Bariquas uh, rap on on the microphone. <laughs> I was I was like, like a little schoolboy, you know. Um, I was going to say, I was going to say something and now I'm going to leave everyone hanging. And, you know, because yeah. obviously you can go. You think them. about it and we'll start episode two <laughs> with what you finally realized you were going to say. You can go too long with a podcast. Um, yeah, I think leave, it, leave it hanging. Leave it hanging. Only the hardcore fans are still listening at this point. Absolutely. Anyway, so. so thank you for continuing to listen and we're sorry for wasting your time. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, that's another thing as well. If, if anyone knows me, I'm kind of like a like a old lady in the sense that I'll start a conversation but then it'll be like oh so you know when this happened and then you but he was wearing a blue t-shirt and he was wearing a blue t-shirt because it was Wednesday and then it was Wednesday when we had the <laughs> banana for breakfast and it was just, and then you've, you've just lost it at that point and I'm sure there that's was all so the many, chair shots pal that, <laughs> definitely all the chair shots so I think at that point you know you have to just let it go so there'll be if there are any people with OCD listening to our conversation that we've just had they will be going insane with the they're hopelessly lost right now they're probably half <laughs> way to Preston <laughs> so yes uh, on that uh, on that note uh, I want to thank you for being a part of Hands Off the Merchandise um, we I would love to do this again hopefully you're not yeah like, yeah God, bring who's, on. who's this guy you know what no, I mean? no, like, bring it on. it's great it's been great <laughs> and like I said we, we'll structure it a bit more next time um, but yes oh, I, what's the what's the point we'll just talk about WrestleMania 9 symbol a bit of Art Donovan and uh, no, I, I, I feel at this point because you really don't like WrestleMania 9 we I haven't think... covered Razor Ramon and Bob Backlund yet. I think there's still some mileage in it. <laughs> that, that is true. Um... And we didn't discuss the Hogan match. 
<laughs> oh, the so the only you're, hope you're gonna that. take the piss that's the thing and then it's just gonna become some awful slagging no, match all right i'm just okay. gonna tell the truth and you're not gonna like it there's a difference <laughs> yeah i can't handle the truth i can handle the <laughs> i can handle the truth commission uh we did a full two-hour um history of the truth commission once to give you an idea of some of well the... that's their entire run isn't it <laughs> we did say that we talked more about or we gave the truth commission more combined airtime than they'd had in Absolutely the right. But, uh, yeah. I just hope you were wearing a beret when you did it. No, I wasn't. Oh, see, it's just audio. Yes, I was. I was wearing a beret in a tight green tank top, and uh, I was being shouted at by the commandant. Um, Excellent. That's tremendous to hear. <laughs> one, one, and I'm going to leave it at this. One of the most underrated managers in wrestling history, the commandant. Yeah. I want to find out why next time. Right here. <laughs> <laughs> See, you see what I did there? Yes, sh- I'm, si- I'm signing off for you now. How's that working? You're a showman. That's the thing. You, you've uh, <laughs> taken to this podcast game a lot better than I have. So, um, yeah, uh, it's all so, good, pal. It's all okay, good. let's t- let's tie a knot in this. And uh, thank you again. Yeah. And uh, Snip it we off. will <laughs> we will talk again very soon. Thank you. Brilliant. Great stuff.